glad you're here. If you would, let's pray. Lord, thank you for breath. Thank you for life. Thank you for the incredible sunset last night. Thank you for the sunrise this morning. Thank you for your mercy that meets us every single morning. Thank you that we're not alone, that we have your Holy Spirit here with us right now. And so in a way, we open ourselves, we posture ourselves to receive your Spirit now, to let you speak into our minds the things that you want to say to your church. Even as we heard this morning during pre-gathering prayer, you want to show those that don't know you salvation. You want to show them true freedom. You want to do the same for our kids downstairs. God, we heard you say that you're inviting your people to be courageous, to enter your presence with boldness and worship you. And so God, thank you for hearing our prayers. And we expect you to move and to act in this very gathering. Your will be done here in Redmond, here at Redeemer's Church, as it is in heaven. All God's people said, amen. Amen. I remember the first time I heard the Beatles. I was 12 years old. A friend came over with like a best of hits album, CD, compact disc. I threw it in, and I was hooked right off of the first line. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, come on. So good. Okay. Yes, you're the boomer generation. I hear you. A decade later in my 20s, uh, I was living my dream, uh, signed to a label as a music artist to EMI, the very label that the Beatles were signed to. And I remember working with my producer there in Nashville, taking cues from how the Beatles did things and then putting that, letting that influence our songs. Um, just another short decade later, uh, my brothers and I, all musicians, decided for my dad's birthday party to jam Beatles songs with him at his house. My dad is a professional drummer, so he was loving this. We got in the room, and we just started going for it. By the way, he put us to shame, okay? For the record, he put us to shame. He knew those songs by heart. Uh, but all this was just a buildup for what would come next in a few years. We found out that Paul McCartney, one of the frontmen of the Beatles, was coming on another U.S. tour, and that he would be stopping through Portland. And so my brothers and I are like, let's do it. Let's all get tickets. Let's get Dad a ticket, and let's go. I'll never forget this. There we were, pouring into the Moda Center. Tons of people. Wow, it is packed, you know? And this sort of nervous expectation. You know, I wonder what songs he's going to play. You know, there's such a long list of songs that he's written. People are looking up set lists. We're looking around, and there's, like, the super fans everywhere. You know, they made signs. They were, like, ready for the concert. Like, ah, that's a good idea, but instead I'm going to make fun of them. All that's happening, and then all of a sudden the lights go dark. And we hear that ominous chord at the beginning of a song, A Hard Day's Night. Could it be? I mean, he hasn't played this song in 60 years. And sure enough, the lights come on full blast, and we see Paul there, and he starts singing. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog, right? Oh, my gosh. Everybody is, everyone is screaming. Everybody's singing along. And then something unexpected, something a little bit mysterious happened. I started crying. <laughs> True. I started crying. Like, I couldn't control my tears, my emotions. 
But what's more interesting is then I looked down the aisle at my brothers and my dad, and they were crying too. <laughs> what's going on? We were all so caught up in that moment. <laughs> what a bunch of babies. <laughs> like, it's like, honestly, in a quick moment, we became like the iconic Beatles teenage fangirls that you see in the black and white, you know? Ah, screaming and crying. <laughs> what a scene. It's a moment I'll never forget. Uh, there was something powerful in that moment. It was bigger than the music. It was bigger than ourselves. It was even bigger than the Beatles. Have you guys ever had a type of experience? Have you guys had an experience like that? Yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe not just like a Beatles concert, but I can recall times here with the church worshiping with you guys, hearing your voices, hundreds of voices singing in unison, brought to tears. You know, endorphins are lighting up my brains like fireworks, you know? It happened just a month ago. I think we ended on the song, Lord, I Need You. And I took out my in-ears and I heard us singing and I thought like a CD was playing. I'm just like, what? That's our church? That's crazy. Cool moments where you sense the thick presence of God. It's powerful. And as it relates to the teaching this morning, I want to tell you another story. Um, But this one's from the Bible. So go ahead and grab your Bible. If you don't have one, we have some free ones in the back next to Perry over there. And open to uh, Acts chapter 16, or if you have a Bible app, open to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look down at verse 12. A lot of this will be on the screen behind me. I love this story. This is one of, by the way, this is one of the best stories in the Bible, a hallmark story. Quick backdrop, um, Luke has recorded the story of Jesus and the early church, that is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, where they, Jesus and his followers, were filled with the Spirit. They went into all of the world sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, it's now the disciples' turn to do that with the help of the Spirit, they're traveling and doing stuff that Jesus did. Here we go, verse 12. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. This would be like modern-day Greece at the top of the Aegean Sea, you know, just west of Turkey. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside of the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to a woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira named Lydia. She's a dealer in purple cloth. And she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So things are going pretty well at this point, right? Can we all agree? Yeah. Verse 16, once we were going to the place of prayer where we met this female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And now she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And finally, I love this, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Well, when their owners realized that their hope in making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Which, we're reading the story, we know wasn't exactly true. I think we can call that an alternative fact. Yeah. But hey, it worked because the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Whoa. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Wow, the story has turned, hasn't it? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flung open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And we know from historical study that a jailer would be sentenced to death if any of his prisoners escaped. Uh, He was accountable to that in his job. So this jailer was basically uh, speeding up the inevitable, right? What a scene. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It gets even better. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. He had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I love that. Yeah, amen. Just... Just amazing. This dude gets scared into eternity, just like me at middle school camp. I love it. <laughs> but what a crazy story. What, what a familiar story to a lot of us that grew up in the church. And I think we all kind of idolize a story like this. Like, we all wish, man, I wish when I worshiped God, I saw these sort of miracles happen, you know? That is minus the whole getting beaten and thrown in jail part, right? I'll take the miracles, but not the beat down. But that's just it. Paul and Silas, at their lowest point, the lowest point in their lives, arguably, decide to worship God. They're victims of gross injustice. They were stripped naked, severely beaten, thrown into jail through false alternative facts, if you will. And then in the darkness, in the chains, literally and figuratively, that's when they decided to worship God. This thing keeps getting stuck to my beard. I apologize. Another reason why I need to shave. Sorry, Grandma. Uh. But that's when they decide to worship God? At the lowest point in their lives? I mean, these dudes take the L, and it's like they just want to like strike up you know, playlists on their Spotify, worship Mondays, and just start going for it so the neighbors can hear, I'll raise a hallelujah. Like, what on earth? Nobody asked them to worship. Nobody expects them to, especially under those circumstances. God didn't ask them to worship. God doesn't command them to worship. God didn't even need them to worship. Because as we read in the story, they were going to get set free the next day. So I got to say this. 
Real talk now. What are these dudes smoking? Right? <laughs> I mean, like, what planet are they on? Are they delusional? Do they have, like, emotional dyslexia or something? Or, or do they understand something about worship that we don't? Are they aware of a deeper reality? Perhaps for them, following Jesus is more than just the good times. You know, when the Holy Spirit is telling them where to go, and the Lydias are getting saved and baptized, and they're riding high of all the miracles. Okay, so hypothetical question here. Is there a behavior, a routine, a habit, a discipline, do we have this slide, of worship that extends into our daily life? Read that. Is there a behavior, a routine, a habit, a discipline of worship that extends into our daily life? The highs and the lows. And if so, wouldn't that be a new way to be human? So ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are going to look at the, dis- the discipline of worship. And there's something so beautiful in store for us this morning. I can't wait. Now, if you are just joining us, uh, we are in a series called A New Way to Be Human. We're in the final section called Corporate Disciplines, and we're using Richard Foster's book as a guide. Um, however, this is all actually just the beginning. I know you're like, we finally made it to the last one next week. We're actually going to add a few disciplines that didn't make Foster's cut. Uh, stay tuned. Brett will be on that in the next few weeks. And then, uh, in I think three weeks, Carson is going to finalize this whole book with celebration. So, yes, stay tuned. A lot to look forward. Now, if you're here and you're kind of new and you're like, what are the disciplines? Um, All disciplines or practices or spiritual formations are based on the life and teachings of Jesus. They are an attempt to follow the way of Jesus, to copy the details of his day-to-day life, uh, to be his disciple, or in modern language, to be like an apprentice or a student. Thus, this morning, we'll be taking cues from Jesus, his heritage, and his early followers. And my hope is that we will create what Foster calls a holy expectancy when we come to worship. So, uh, that said, we'll get into it. First thing first, definitions. What is worship? Here we go, definition of worship. Now, speaking as a person who has given most of his life to this subject, here's the best and most unmemorable definition of worship I've come across. Are you ready for it? True worship involves reverential, reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. A little dense, right? But... One thing I like about this definition is that it covers a lot of ground, right? A lot of subjects, from aesthetics to furniture to war and art and everything in between. Now, you'd be shocked to find out that worship in the biblical translation actually never refers to music. But instead, biblical worship is to fear God, to bow to God, and to serve Him. Those are the three most common things you find in the Bible when it refers to music to music, or to worship, sorry. Now, we did a whole teaching on this about a year and a half ago called Discover Worship. You can go listen to that later. But all of these things, to fear, to bow, to serve, all have an overture of obedience. That is a key factor in biblical worship. You might say it's God's love language. Today, culturally, worship has taken on almost all of its cues from, like, the book of Psalms, 
where we worship as praise, prayer, silence, and liturgy, or the stuff we do in church. Are you guys lost yet? Good. Okay. Here's my simplified definition for this morning. (laughs) Worship is response and encounter. This is all you need to worry about this morning. Worship is response and encounter. So keep that in your mind. We'll revisit that in a minute. Okay, no more definitions. Let's go. The conflict of worship. For most Christians, worship is a genre of music that we don't really like, but we kind of put up with on Sundays. Want me to read it again? For most Christians, worship is a genre of music we don't really like, but we kind of put up with on Sundays. I mean, life can even be good, like things are going well, and I'll be at church, and I'll hear the song sometimes, and I'll be like, oh, this song? Oh, come on. You know, I could at least put it in the key of D so I could sing the third part harmony, but this guy, come on. And now the coffee's out? Oh, what's... That's it. I'm going to the Baptist church down the street. Come on. (laughs) Consequently, God, who is supposed to be the object of our worship, is is dethroned due to our feelings or our preferences or our circumstances. For example, I think we've all been guilty at one time or another of, of not coming to church simply because we did not feel like it. Okay, I'm not alone. Good. You know, if you had a bad week... Instead of thinking, I need to worship with God's people, we say something like, ah, I just need some, some me time, you know? I'm just going to stay home, watch the game, watch The Bachelorette. <laughs> you, not me. <laughs> Hypothetical situation there. Have some me time. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because we are indirectly shaped by our culture. It's actually not all our fault. <laughs> And our culture says this, you're free to do whatever you want. You know, you do you, right? Follow your inner voice. Or I hear this all the time, be authentic. Be your authentic self, you know? The heart wants what the heart wants. And since the beginning of time, people have allowed their hearts to worship all sorts of things. Now, the Bible called those things idols. Today, we call them ideals or progress or the pursuit of happiness. It's not good. That said, in contrast to our self-worship, in contrast now to our self-worship, how did Jesus, our Lord, worship? What's our paradigm for worship? Is this just too much cutting in and out, Brett? No? It's good? Okay, cool. No worries, bro. So how did worship, or sorry, how did Jesus worship? Here's a quick, quick biblical summary. We're going to fly through this. One, we know that Jesus followed the Jewish customs of the day, dedicated to God by his family. And we know that Jesus routinely visited Jerusalem to participate in festivals. I think we have a line-by-line, Adam, Dylan, cool. Uh, That is, he was accustomed to gathering in large crowds. We know that Jesus was well acquainted with the hymnal of his day, like the Psalms, quoting them often. Furthermore, he would have given tithes and participated in temple sacrifices. We know that Jesus in his adult ministry frequently visited the synagogues. We know that that he even served in the synagogues as a rabbi, like reading and teaching. We know that Jesus prayed often, alone and with gathered 
people. We know that he participated in kids' ministry and even encouraged others to participate in kids' ministry. (laughs) Intentional pause there. (laughs) We even know that he sang, like he sang a hymn after he celebrated Passover before he was crucified on his way to the Mount of Olives, which for me kind of begs the question, what did Jesus' voice sound like? Any thoughts? I'm going with Ray LaMontagne. No? Just me? I think post-resurrection, it was more of like a Michael Jackson voice, you know? That's what I'm looking forward to, resurrection, Michael Jackson. Okay. So how did Jesus worship? We can answer that question with often and with others. Gathered worship was a routine, a habit, a discipline for Jesus. So don't miss... Don't miss this point. For Jesus, gathering together with God's people was essential. And this practice, this discipline, carried over directly to his followers, right? The early church literally risked their lives to meet as the body of Christ. It was that important to them. It's what fueled their faith, their life. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says this, And let us consider how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's Hebrews 10, verse 24. When we worship together as a church, there's a divine interdependence that melts our individualism, that breaks down our walls. God is able to do more when we meet together than when we don't. As Paul's letters often teach, each member, like each one of you, is like a different body part, providing something that the other members can't provide for themselves. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, at home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitudes gather together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. That's so cool. TJ, do we have these slides? They are, oh, good. Okay, the slides are back. Awesome. If Jesus is our worship leader, check this out. If Jesus is our worship leader, miracles should be expected to occur. Expected to occur when we worship together. Healings, both inward and outward, will be the rule, not the exception. The book of Acts will not just be something we read about, but something we are experiencing here at Redeemer's Church. So good. Wow, when we make it a habit to worship, we encounter the living God. So let's talk about worship as response and encounter, that definition I gave you. Uh, next slide. Do we, oh, you guys know what that is, right? That's a rare picture of a shark stepping on a Lego. Uh, go to the next slide, actually. Not sure how that snuck in there. Okay. Worship is a response and an encounter. Yes, Foster writes this. Worship is a human response to the divine initiative, a response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. It's a response because God is the creator and the first one to make the action. Before God ever commands us to worship him, he first, or sorry, the first, the first humans chose to respond to God in worship. Did you catch that? So before God commanded us to worship him, 
Humans first chose to respond to him. Cain and Abel brought offerings to God in Genesis chapter 4. Abraham did the same. Israel breaks forth in song when they go through the Red Sea, when they're delivered from Pharaoh. They just break out in song. It's a response that we can also choose to make today, even when things aren't going our way. Notably, I think of Job, right? The book of Job, the guy who lost everything. And at the very point of his suffering, he responds to God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But may the name of the Lord be praised. Blessed be his name. Wow. Worship can't be conformed to our physical well-being, our feelings, our preferences, our circumstances. I often hear worship experts say something like, God initiates our worship. Um, I struggle with that language. It makes it sound like God has self-worth issues, right? And I don't think God is insecure, okay? But the scriptures do say this, and I like this. It says that God is jealous for our hearts. He's jealous for us. He wants to be in relationship with us. Perry, what do you need? I love it. (laughs) Tatum has to go to the restroom. And who are we looking for? Ashton. Ashton? Okay. You guys heard it. Man, God is jealous for us. Now, I get that as a father. I get this. It's weird. Like, there's there's some nights where, you know, we as parents, Monica and I, are exhausted. We've been playing with our kids all day long, and it's just like, can we just get this kid in jammies, brush his teeth, and get him to bed? But you know what's really funny? Is the moment we're in bed, the moment he's in bed and we're in bed and we're looking at each other, like not a few minutes go by before we're like, oh, I miss the little guy. <laughs> should we go wake him up? No, 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 we shouldn't. Yeah, 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 we should, we should, we should, you know. Like, we miss being with our son. We're jealous for him. We love him. We want to spend time with him. We want to create amazing experience with him that we'll never forget. And in that same way, worship at its deepest, most intimate point is encounter with the living God. It's encounter. So it's response and it's encounter. We can expect to encounter God, to be in his presence. I love this quote from Foster. He says, a striking feature of worship in the Bible is that People gathered in what we would call only what we would only call a holy expectancy. They believed they would actually hear the voice of God. Now think of the book of Exodus, the story of Israel. When Moses went into the tabernacle, he knew he was entering into the into the presence. I'm just gonna squeeze it until it starts working. Submit. Okay. When Moses went to the tabernacle, he knew he was entering into the presence of God. And the same is true for the early church. Those early believers gathered, they were keenly aware that the veil had been ripped open, ripped into, and like Moses, they were entering into the Holy of Holies. They were coming into that glorious, gracious presence of the living God. Therefore, they gathered with anticipation, right? Knowing that Christ was present with them, they would teach them that they'd be in his living power, his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit, often we see in the book, of, the book of Acts, shook the building. It was powerful. It was a moment they didn't forget. When we begin to sense the presence or become overwhelmed by God's presence, by his spirit, that is worship at its very best. This is the type of worship that actually invites all of our emotions. Like Psalm 100, it invites our joy, 
our praise, our loudness, our singing, but it also, like the Psalms and the laments, it invites our sorrow. It invites our silence. We open ourselves to God who receives us as children. He's fully God. We're fully not. But because of his love, we can be in his presence. His arms are wide. He invites us all in. So what happens when we worship? Now let's think back to that Paul and Silas story. These men weren't just simply optimistic, okay? But they were dedicated to the discipline of worship. They made a routine of worshiping God in all its various forms, in all the seasons, high seasons and low seasons. They did that just like Jesus, who did it just like Moses, just like Abraham, just like Job. And what happened for them can actually happen for us. So pay attention here. This can happen for us, literally and metaphorically. God shows up. When we worship, God shows up. Miracles happen. God can shake the room. God will hear our praise and save us. He'll bring salvation and freedom to our neighbors. He'll even bring salvation and repentance to our enemies. God will set us free from our chains, our addictions, our hopelessness. God will take us in and heal our wounds. God will make us right, will make right the injustice of the world. He'll baptize us into new life. The Holy Spirit stuff will happen, etc. Okay? I think I have a line list of that. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you see it. Man, these guys, Paul and Silas, these guys were ready to respond and worship, and the, by- the byproduct of that was encountering God. So now, how do we get there as a church, right? How do we as redeemers step into this? Because I see it, we're in a unique place in time, right? For one, today, the church isn't persecuted. This isn't the book of Acts, right? You're not going to get thrown in jail for worshiping God, unless we're talking deep COVID, but that was a rare thing, Okay. As well, this is in 1979 when, when Foster wrote this book at the height of the Jesus movement as people were breaking out of like a form of liturgy that was just becoming heartless. They were getting all passionate. No, instead, this is 2022. And the pendulum is swinging back and forth between structure and form and fresh creativity. I mean, just speaking from my generation, I don't need another worship album by Hillsong. I need a prayer book. I don't need more Bible facts and apologetics. I need to grow an emotional maturity. I don't need a cool building, cool logo, Sergio's amazing coffee. (laughs) I need a mentor. I need community. And I need commitment. So here's a list that Foster gives us. Here's how we step into worship today in 22. One, learn to practice the presence of God daily. It's not going out of style, morning devos. (laughs) I still do it every morning. Learn to practice the presence of God daily. So important. Number two, we're going to fly through these. Have many different experiences of worship. Do it alone. Do it with your family. Do it with your small group, with your church. Do it at large festivals. I, you know, I had the privilege of worshiping around the world. I've worshiped with the church in Uganda. That was awkward, okay? <laughs> Didn't know a single song. And they clap on one and three. I don't get it, but I just jumped in. Let's do this. Come on. <laughs> worshiped with the church in Thailand. Had a similar experience. <laughs> they do Thai prayer. I don't know why they call it Thai prayer. It's when you, everybody prays at once, 
right? It's not like going around and taking turns. It's just like, okay, we're going to thank God. You know, like everybody's going for it. So cool. Expose yourself to different experiences in worship. Number three, find ways to really prepare for the gathered experience of worship. So start Sunday night. This is really important. Brett's probably going to talk about Sabbath in the coming weeks as a discipline. My wife and I practice Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night, and we prepare for Sabbath, which also prepares us for this gathering. So get prepared for the gathering experience. You know, I think of like the, my grandfather's generation, where like they would get the suit and like the shirts all ironed out the night before and laid out on the beds. You know, we can do that hypothetically. <laughs> lay out the jeans or whatever, but doing that emotionally, you know, prepare yourself to come and worship with God's people. It starts on Saturday night. Four, have a willingness to be gathered together in the power of the Lord. That is to say, let go of that individualism. Check it at the door when you come in. Come to serve and be served by others. Five, cultivate a holy expectation to encounter God like we talked about an expectation to let the power of the Holy Spirit move, not dictated by me, by Brett, by you, but just saying, Spirit, we are here. Do your thing. Six, absorb distractions with gratitude. Receive whatever happens in the gathering. I love that. You know, we kind of say this often, that we're not afraid to have your kids gathered with us. If they're making giggles or cries or whatnot, it's awesome. They're invited here. Like Jesus, let them come. This is great. At the same time, we totally renovated our downstairs. <laughs> so there's a place for them, you know. If, if you have a baby that's crying, there's a place for them. We even have a TV going downstairs with this teaching live. So, uh, but all to say, just embrace the distractions, okay? Embrace it. We want this place when we worship to feel like a living room. That's the way it was for the early church in the book of Acts. It's just a living room. So absorb distractions with gratitude. Lastly, learn to offer sacrifices of praise. Let your body, your lungs, unite your thoughts and feelings. So this is, this is important. Scripture urges us to offer a sacrifice of praise continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's Hebrews chapter 13. There is a sacrifice nature to the discipline, to the discipline of worship. And I had to learn this early on in my life. Like, here's my advice. Don't let your feelings dictate your body's ability to praise or sing, to lift your hands or to sing. But instead, make your body dictate your feelings. You hear that? And then watch. The Spirit will begin to work in your heart, and those feelings will rise up. This is why we are commanded to praise often in the Bible. The Hebrew words for praise often involve like physical actions, like hallelujah, and it's like a fist pump and a clap. You know what I mean? God knew that we are body and mind and heart combined. It is all part of our soul. And when we worship God with our bodies, with our lungs, we take a deep breath and we sing, everything is being united. I love the study of neurology today. They can see it in our brains. Everything is being aligned to worship God. So don't let your feelings dictate your body's ability to praise, okay? When you don't feel it, thank you, my friend. Come on. (laughs) I know, you go to some churches and they never stop clapping. It's just, it's just happening. Praise goes throughout the teaching. I love that. Last thing, and I'm going to add an eighth thing to this list, show up. Sometimes you just got to make it a point to get to church, to get to that small group throughout the week. 
or the morning Devo time. Do you guys know who I think would make great worship leaders? Peloton instructors. <laughs> right? Like those online, like, instruction, like, workout classes. They're amazing. They say this all the time. Like, the first minute of the class, they're like, well done. You've made it. I listen to the British guy, so that's how I'm doing a British book. <laughs> you did it. You made it here. You got your shoes on. You've got your clothes on. You're ready to go. The hardest part is already behind you. Right? You've already done the hardest part. You've shown up. It's so true. Show up. Don't be afraid to show up. My friends, practice the discipline of worship. Respond and encounter. Don't worship anything else, not even the Beatles, okay? We're going to end here. In fact, I'm going to play a little pad to set the mood. When, when more than one or two come into public worship with a holy expectancy, this is a quote from Foster, it can change the atmosphere of the room. People who enter hurried and distracted are drawn quickly into a sense of the silent presence. Hearts and minds are lifted upward. Upward. The air becomes charged with the the expectancy. Now, it just so happens we started this thing called pre-gathering prayer ago, where we give ourselves more time and space to let the Holy Spirit move, including other outward disciplines that we talked about. So this week, we want to invite you guys to actually come to pre-gathering prayer next Sunday. That's how I want to uh, practice this discipline with Redeemer's Church. So next Sunday, you're going to be at church anyways, right? Because it's Mother's Day. She's going to make you come. So you might as well set the alarm a little bit early. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your kids. Prepare for that on Saturday night. Come to pre-gathering prayer. Begin to experience what God does every Sunday here in this very room. You know, John Lennon, that other Beatle, that other frontman, he has this infamous quote. He said, the Beatles are as popular as Jesus, and Christianity will die. It won't outlast rock and roll. Now, when you come to pre-gathering worship, you might not expect worship to be as entertaining as the Beatles or a Beatles conference, concert, but I can tell you this. You can expect something better. Expect to encounter God, His power, His salvation, His healing. Expect to celebrate, to praise, to give thanksgiving. Expect to serve others in prayer and guidance. Expect to bow in worship and confession. Expect the opportunity to hear and obey God's voice. Expect freedom. Expect the the spirit to move. Sound good? Let's pray. We're going to go into just a moment of prayer where I'm going to give you guys some time and space. And I think a great way to respond, I do this physically as I just open my hands up like this on my lap. And I say, God, I'm here for you now. And even if right now it's just a minute of awkward silence while the pad's playing and I'm messing with all my stuff to get on the piano, You're in the presence of God. You're in the presence of the family of God. So let's do that. Holy Spirit, we open ourselves to you right now. It's good to be in your presence with your family, with saints and angels right now 
around your throne, worshiping the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. I'll give you guys a minute or two, just right now in this place.